Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Well, hello there and welcome into Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 220. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. This week on the show, a couple of conversations for you of note. In the second half, we talk with a longtime Boston sports writer, Sean McAdam. He has covered the Boston Red Sox longer than anybody currently on that beat. These days, he writes for Boston Sports Journal, and he's got a brand new book on the history of the Sox called The Franchise. We'll talk with Sean about that in just a little bit. But up first, well, it's a television icon. He played Corporal Maxwell Q. Klinger. On all 11 seasons of MASH, indelible character from one of the great programs of all time. And we had a chance to catch up with the uh, delightful Jamie Farr to talk not, not just about MASH, but about the early days. The move from Toledo to California, working at the Pasadena Playhouse, and how Red Skelton played a pivotal role in his career. That's all coming up here right now. Our conversation with Jamie Farr on Downtown. Let's get this rolling. If, if you're ready, I certainly am. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. First Thank of you. all, uh, by the way, a happy belated birthday to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate anybody that I can hear saying happy birthday. <laughs> well, we want to talk about MASH, of course, with the 50th anniversary coming up. But I, but I want to start to, uh, back a little bit earlier than that. How, how did you go from uh, from Toledo to the Pasadena Playhouse? I used to get a... Um, magazine at the corner uh, drugstore in my neighborhood called Theater Arts. And in the back of it, uh, it had an ad for Pasadena Playhouse. So I had heard about it and I thought, you know, I maybe that's something I would enjoy doing because I, I didn't think I was going to stay in my hometown after graduating from high school. Uh, I was, uh, I mean, I had uh, offers from Bowling Green State University and uh, University of Toledo, but I really wanted to find out what it was like to be in the theater business. So I uh, emailed, I didn't email, we didn't have email at that time. I, I wrote them a letter and they, uh, they accepted me and the tuition was $600. And my family uh, didn't have that kind of money, but I had uh, purchased a lot of savings stamps, uh, war bonds and war stamps and that. And I turned everything that I had in and it got out to $600. So all I needed now was my uh, train fare to, uh, to Pasadena. And, uh, and they, I sent them the money, you know, the tuition and, and everything and got accepted. I caught the uh, train from the Toledo uh, train station, downtown Toledo, what got me to Chicago. And then the Chicago train got me to uh, the Pasadena area. And then I uh, checked in and my father and mother managed to send me a bit of money each each uh, month, you know, to uh, I was staying in a um, in an area that wasn't a it was like a dormitory. And you had a, uh, a, a a community kitchen, you know, that you had you had one drawer where your food was put in for canned goods and that <laughs> and there's a little space in the refrigerator for your uh, cold things. <laughs> So I got like about $20 a, a month from my uh, parents and then I had to get a job on the weekends. I'd uh, go to school five days a week at the Pasadena Playhouse and then on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday, I'd go into the Hollywood area and worked in an Army Navy store. And my sister and brother-in-law had moved into that area. And so I, uh, they had a cot in their, uh, in their apartment and I would sleep on that cot <laughs> and then work all day, you know, and then uh, on Sunday, I catch uh, two buses to get back to Pasadena. The one from Hollywood to Eagle Rock and then Eagle Rock to uh, to uh, Pasadena and then start all over again. <laughs> well, and, and that work at Pasadena Playhouse led to your first opportunity on screen in, in a wonderful film, The Blackboard Jungle. Yep, I, I was doing a play. Uh, there and a talent scout saw me and they were doing this movie. I had no idea what the movie was about. And they said, it's a teenage movie and we'd like for you to come in. And I didn't have an agent at that time. A buddy of mine 
uh, an actor friend of mine said, look, I'll get you an agent. Uh, and, uh, and you go ahead and, and get, take the screen test. So I went in to MGM and oh my goodness, there were all kinds of young people, kids, you know, <laughs> Joel Freeman, who was the, uh, assistant director on Blackboard Jungle. He was managing all of the screen tests. Uh, he was Dory Sherry's nephew. Dory oh, Sherry wow, yeah. was the uh, head of MGM at that particular time. And so he, they had to search all the kids, you know, they had zip guns and, <laughs> and, and razors and all kinds of stuff. So at any rate, I, uh, I screen tested with James Drury, who later became oh, the Virginian. The Virginian, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they had me do the, you know, say my name and a few other things in that. And lo and behold, I got the part and I couldn't believe it. I got uh, four weeks at... Uh, at, I think it was $350 a week uh, <laughs> uh, to, to uh, do Blackboard Jungle. And uh, of course, Richard Brooks was the director and a real tough director too. I mean, he wasn't one of, you know, the Vincent Minnelli type of directors that <laughs> very artistic. He was a real uh, blood and guts kind of director. <laughs> and he, uh, he was absolutely wonderful though. And of course, got to meet and work with Sidney Poitier and Vic Morrow and and of course, Glenn Ford and Louis Calhern and Ann Francis and Paul Mazursky, John Ehrman. A lot of them. Uh, John Ehrman became a director, and Paul Mazursky, of course, became a writer, producer, and director. And uh, Vic Morrow had a, you know, a, a wonderful career before that uh, tragedy happened in that movie that uh, he was doing. Now, anybody so, who's been successful has to have help along the way. And, and you had a couple of really wonderful mentors. Can can you talk a little bit about uh, how Danny Thomas helped out in your career? Well, Danny Thomas didn't really uh, help out. I mean, that uh, if you read that in Wikipedia, it wasn't Danny. Danny came, oh. Danny was in the neighborhood in in Toledo, went to the same high school I did, uh, Woodward High School, many years ahead of me. I came to uh, Hollywood and... Uh, I really didn't even know uh, Danny. I had never really met him. I, I knew his brothers and I knew his sister that uh, lived back in the city. It was uh, Red Skelton mm. that was the person that really uh, aided me in my career. Now, was, I, it, was it Red Skelton who, who, when you decided you were you're going to go in, you went into the military uh, and you were going to give up acting and, and he's the one that, that talked you out of that and said, you, you work for me. Yeah, but let me get you the backstory yeah. on that and how I got with Red Skelton because I, uh, I, I, I had done I had done Blackboard Jungle and I was out of work after that. Uh, I, I, Jackie Joseph, I don't know if you remember Jackie. I sure She's do. A, she, her mom, Bill, uh, was a bookkeeper, and uh, I was out of work. I didn't know how to pay for my rent and and that. And I went to Bell to see her and she says, look, I'm, I'm a bookkeeper at a chinchilla farm here. <laughs> she says, all we have is, is you'll have to, you know, take out the bottles and clean the nesting boxes and janitorial work. I said, I'll take it. She said, it only pays like $50 a week. I said, I don't care. I'll take it. I I'm broke. I have no, uh, you know, no jobs coming up. So I did that. And uh, while I was there, I was taking acting classes uh, with Jack Coslin with uh, Clint Eastwood. Wow. <laughs> Clint was cleaning <laughs> swimming pools at that time. <laughs> Is that better than working at a chinchilla farm? I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> definitely was better than that. <laughs> Irish McCullough, who later did uh, Sheena the Jungle Queen, yeah. was in that class. Nick Adams, who later wow. did The Rebel, was in that class. And anyway, I, I, I got into a play with uh, uh, Craig Stevens, Mr. Oh, Roberts. Yeah. and uh, Peter Craig, Gunn, right? Yeah. And I, again, I, I was working at, at nighttime on that and I was getting another $50 a week. It was Corbin <laughs> Bernson's dad, Harry Bernson, that got me into the uh, into the show. Wow. So uh, at any rate, uh, uh, Craig Stevens got a pilot at, at CBS called The Mighty O with Alan Hale Jr. And uh, uh, I think it was Lola Albright was in it, Richard Jekyll and that. And they had a character in there called Schnorkel. And he says, I got the guy. I, it's perfect guy. You know, he's, he's got a big nose. because <laughs> That's what Schnuckle had. He's supposed to smell anything. So I went in and I met the producers at, at CBS and that. And they signed me to it. And I did the pilot. It didn't sell. But Sherwood Schwartz, who was Red Skelton's head writer, saw it. And he said, hey, 
Red doesn't have a military kind of show. We've got Clem Cadiddle Hopper and Freddie the Freeloader and Willie Lump Lump and that. But we, uh, we'd like to try to, yeah, let's get the kid with the big nose and we'll give the other part to Red, the, uh, the part of the chef, Cookie. His name was Cookie and that. And so they brought me onto the, uh, onto the set and I did this. That was live TV. Can you imagine wow. that, Richard? Live TV. <laughs> and it was a hit. It was absolutely fantastic. So I wound up being on this character with Red Skelton every so many shows. And that's when I got drafted. I, uh, I, I was doing really well, move, moving along fine. I actually did a movie with Mervyn Leroy directing uh, Andy Griffith's uh, No Time for Sergeants. Right, but Don Knotts, too. Yeah, Don Knotts, yeah. Well, I, I was playing a lieutenant in that, and the next day I had to go into the military as a private. <laughs> I finished, they allowed me to finish the movie. <laughs> so I went in, and uh, I was in uh, uh, New York City for a while. I just took a basic at Fort Ord, then went to New York City at the Army Pictorial Center, and then got shipped overseas to Japan and uh, Korea. <laughs> and so while I was uh, there in Japan at the Far East Network Radio, Red Skelton lost his son, Richard, from leukemia, and he wanted to go over to entertain the troops. So he requested me from the State Department. And then he, I went with him, and we went to Korea, played all the little campsites along the way, not like Bob Hope with a big uh, you know, camera right. thing to sell, sell the uh, show to the networks. And then uh, we, um, we went up the, all the way to the DMZ. So when Red was going back home, he said, listen, when you get out, he said, it's going to be a little tough for you. He said, so if anything happens to that, you come and see me. So that's what happened. When I got wow. out of the service, I was trying to get back into doing the, the show business. My dad passed away and uh, my mom had, didn't have any money. So I was going to have to quit the business and go home to help support my mother. That's when I went to say goodbye to him. And he says, you're not leaving. Hmm. And he um, pulled out a lot of uh, bills, uh, $100 bills. He uh, took several of them off the, and he said, send that home to your mom. You're working for me. Oh. And that's how uh, I got saved into the business. What a wonderful story. We're talking with Jamie Farr here on downtown. All right, let, let's move to MASH. The role of Max Klinger, as I understand, that was just a, a one-shot deal, one day of work originally? Yeah, and how that came about, I uh, I had done a, uh, a one-day job on the show F Troop. All right, uh, with, with Gene Reynolds directing, right? Gene Reynolds yeah. directing High Averback, I think, was one of the producers <laughs> of that show, if I remember correctly. At any rate, uh, Gene, uh, I, I played a stand-up comic Indian who was auditioning for the Hakawi <laughs> tribe. Uh, they were going to have a big uh, powwow, you know. <laughs> and they gave me all of the one-liners, uh, terrible Henny Youngman and uh, Milton Berle one-liners. It was uh, to take my wife, please. Take my squaw, please. You know, all those kind of jokes. <laughs> And uh, they, uh, the punchline was the uh, chief comes to me, says, don't smoke signal us, we'll smoke signal you. And I said, don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> well, Gene liked me, and he, he used to have a little black book. And if he liked an actor, he'd write the name of the actor in the black book. So when this character, uh, this smash had started, uh, I think this was like the fourth show into the first year of the series, um, Larry Gelbart had come up with his character that uh, that he uh, got from a uh, Lenny Bruce situation where mm. usually they had um, they had you know a dress of the day uh, for your fatigues or your class A and Lenny Bruce I think was in the Coast Guard at that time so jokingly he showed up in a dress and uh, Larry Gelbart said hey what a great idea that is for somebody trying to get out of the army so I just had uh, four four or five lines in the show it was uh, i think the fourth show of the season it was called chief surgeon who and uh he named me clinger after his childhood friend in in chicago and uh and so um i i came on the show i had four lines i think i got uh 200 uh, i think it was 250 250 dollars <laughs> for the day and i thought you know nothing of it i thought okay this is one of my famine times too because i was out right. of work and they called me back he called me back, I think, three times. So um, the match was going to be canceled. You knew that after yeah, the first yeah. year, right? Right. Yeah, because uh, we were number 57 out of 65 shows. <laughs> we were on Sunday night opposite Wonderful World of Disney. And it was uh, Bill Paley was going to cancel it. And Mrs. Paley said, you know, I like the show. Why don't you just change it to another time spot? So he said, okay. 
So he changed it to that Saturday night lineup, which became the greatest night in the history of television. Yeah. Uh, All in the Family, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and the Carol Burnett yeah. Show. Wow. And uh, that's what saved the uh, the series. Now, now, am I right, too, Jamie, that it was it was your idea to play it to play it straight and not to not be flamboyant that this was this was a guy who was doing what he could to find a way out of the army. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they um, I, they said, well, I, they had a director that had me doing it in a different way. And then and, and Gene had called me back to, to reshoot whatever it was. And he says, how would you play this? I said, why don't you just play it absolutely straight? Let everybody else make the comments and that give them a cigar. And that uh, most of the time, uh, whenever any guys dressed up in, in women's garb, they usually uh, were in a disguise of some sort. I said, this way, he's not in a disguise. He just, <laughs> this is him. This is the way he, this is his, he's, it's his placard for the verb, verbal stuff that the Hawkeye and the Trapper were doing. This was, this was my showing a way that I wanted to get out of the RV. Now so he said, okay, try it. And it worked and so it worked. well. Yeah, now we've had Mike Farrell on. Mike uh, is a great friend of the show. He comes on with us uh, every year. And he said one of the things that struck him, especially joining the show a few seasons in, was how willing the writers and the producers were to get input from actors. And he was shocked at that. Yeah, and he's absolutely correct. But both Mike and I are two of the luckiest actors in the world because, as he said, he said, he said, come on a show like that—that that, that's a hit with that kind of writing and and the the cast members and me too. I mean, I I the second year, uh, it was the third year that they put me under contract that I became a regular, and I forgot when Mike came in. Was it the third or the fourth year? I think it was the fourth season. Yeah. Season. Well, you know, the very uh, uh, one of the very first shows that I did when I got under contract was the show that Harry Morgan came on as the crazy general. The, uh, oh, the, yes. The, the, the general, general flipped, flipped it down. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was a lucky thing. But uh, Mike is absolutely correct. It, uh, the writers were wonderful. Uh, the directors, uh, the uh, the producers, the cast members, uh, all the atmosphere. Uh, I, you know, we knew the names of all of the ones like Kelly Nakahara and and uh, Dennis Troy, Roy Goldman, Jeff Maxwell, who was Igor the chef. I mean, they were all absolutely wonderful. It was a perfect cast. I want to talk about uh, some episodes along the way, Jamie. And I, I've read, I, I, I assume this is true, that uh, you say your two favorites, favorites were Officer of the Day and Big Mac. I'm trying to remember Officer of the Day. Uh, was that was that the one with Alan being the officer? Yes. Of yeah. And uh, I'm trying to remember what I tried to do in that <laughs> one. I tried to. I tried to. Uh, th- was that the one where I tried to get out as a nun? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's why. <laughs> I think I tried a couple of things at that time to to do it. The dialogue was very good, and the one that uh, the 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 uh, General MacArthur one got the biggest laugh that uh, that punchline that they had or the punch joke that they had with me showing up. Uh, the Statue of Liberty <laughs> yeah. at the end with the, Douglas MacArthur doesn't even pay any attention to the gang right. at all. But you see him going past them in the Jeep and he sees something and he salutes and then you <laughs> had the cut of me with a, with a flaming torch. That was the other thing. <laughs> well, I, I had gone into Beverly Hills the day after that had, uh, had shown and people were honking their horns at me, waving at me. Bus drivers were honking at my horn, that at me with their horn. And I said, I couldn't believe that. That's how funny that. Some people <laughs> told me they actually fell off their sofas watching that. Oh, that, it that was show. it was brilliant. Now I, I like I like the offbeat episodes, and, and a couple of my favorites. One of them was uh, Follies of the Living, Concerns of the Dead. That's the episode where you you have that. Fever and, and Klinger is convinced that uh, he's having a conversation with a soldier who turns out to be dead. Yeah, I think I, I think Alan didn't Alan Alder write that I one. I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, that was a very well. They did interesting shows. Uh, they did a lot of things that you wouldn't see on a half-hour comedy. Mm-hmm. Or they, well, they gave us a name. They they said we were a dramedy, not a comedy, and they gave us that kind of a a a, a, a label. Uh, that was a very good show. Well, all of them. I, I, how about the one where where we did the uh, uh, where the uh, it was like Lady in the Lake, 
where the soldier is, <laughs> is dying and yeah. everything from his viewpoint. Oh, brilliant. And that was a tough show to do, Richard, because we, he did, he, he did, there weren't any cuts in that. They just did the 10 minute reel. And, and if you started at the scene and then you had to come in at the end of the scene, there were no cuts within that scene. So you, everybody mm. had to be perfect in it. And it was really very, very tough on all of us to, to make sure that we had our lines right and we hit the marks. I love the dreams episode too, and especially uh, Klinger's dream where he goes back to Toledo and looks through the window and, and they're doing surgery and then he realizes it's him on the operating table. On the operating table. I think Alan wrote that one, I mm. think as well. Uh, the, that, uh, that the one that called dreams. Yeah. The, uh, very, very, very interesting writing in it. And and again, the, all those actors, every single one of them, the, the, the original cast and the ones that replaced them were all great in their own way. And, and they could do anything, Richard. You give them something silly to do, they could do it. You give them something dramatic, they could do it. They were just all around wonderful, wonderful actors and actresses. Now, I know you you stayed very close friends with the cast, and, and we hear this about ensembles, but but something about this group, uh, you guys seem tighter than most. I know you and Loretta and Jeff Maxwell, uh, who've both been on our show, are, are doing a, a number of these uh, Comic-Cons and visits. I think you've got another one coming up. What is it about this group that's, that's kept you all such great friends for 50 years now? Well, I just think it's, it was the chemistry that we had, not only did we uh, enjoy the characters that we played? We all had the same work ethic. Uh, when they would set up the setting up the cameras and the lights, we'd go off into a little area and run the lines, mm -hmm. run them back and forth, back and forth. You know, a lot of times when the actors, uh, we'd be on a set and they were setting up stuff, they'd be on the uh, on the telephone talking to their press agent, where's their next job, or they have any game shows or whatever the heck. We didn't do that. We had a little room. Uh, that was set aside with our chairs in it. And we ran the lines, ran the lines, ran the line back and forth, back and forth and back and forth till we got the rhythm of, of the scene. And then again, we also liked each other. Uh, there wasn't a day that you didn't, you, you wanted to get up every morning to go to work and you couldn't wait to get back to work when uh, the, the next day. That's how, how wonderful the atmosphere was. Um. Here we are 50 years later. We're still talking about MASH. What is it about this show? Obviously, it's one of the great shows in the history of television, but but what do you think it was that kept it going and so popular for so long? And it's never faded in popularity and, and adds new generations of fans every year. Everything you said was absolutely correct. And uh, what gets uh, uh, Loretta and Jeff and me uh, amazed is when we do these uh, personal appearances for signing autographs and things is that we never realize uh, what an inspiration the show was mm. to these people's personal lives. I mean, it was a job for us. We were actors and actresses and that's how we paid our bills and fed our families and, and paid the rent and everything. Uh, but to them, some of them, they, they, they come over to you, they hug you, they, they tell you they got into medicine, uh, they, they, they tell you what it meant to their lives, how important the show was to them. I mean, we, hey, we were just doing this as entertainment and a, as a job, but it was far more than that. It, it was really something that we are surprised at when we go out there, uh, how meaningful we were to everybody's lives. And the wonderful people that uh, that are no longer with us, my gosh, uh, so many talented folks, Harry Morgan, Bill Christopher, David Ogden Stiers, Wayne Rogers, McLean Stevenson, Larry Linville, uh, Kelly, uh, you mentioned as well. Uh, yeah. They are remembered just as fondly uh, because they were all uh, so wonderful and, and brought every one of them brought something unique to that ensemble. Exactly right. Again, uh, I, I, I never worked with a, a cast like that uh, before. And I, and I truly do miss, miss all of the ones that have uh, left us. And I treasure the ones that are still with us. Uh, they actually, uh, on my birthday, which was July the 1st, uh, Mike Farrell and uh, Loretta had come out from New York uh, to do one of the uh, Comic-Cons uh, in Burbank, uh, right near where I, I'm still in California and, and Jeff Maxwell is still. And uh, Jeff came uh, with uh, some gifts. Mike Farrell and Shelly Fabre, his wife came, uh, Barbara Christopher, um, Bill's widow, uh, Alan Katz, uh, one of the producers oh. and writers of the show. 
and Loretta, and they had a birthday cake, and we we had um, wonderful food at a a wonderful uh, Mediterranean restaurant that's in the valley in Sherman Oaks, and it was a great time. Well, we all hugged each other, told stories, and then um, then Jeff and Loretta and I went on to Comic Con <laughs> to, <laughs> to sign autographs. You've also uh, done so much wonderful work uh, for charitable organizations through the years uh, with your golf tournament uh, and many others. Uh, how great is that for a, a guy of modest means from Toledo to be able to give so much back through the years? I, I wake up every morning and I can't believe it myself. I go out of this little kid with a big nose <laughs> in the north end of Toledo, wind up uh, where, he, uh, where he did. Uh, the uh, the park I uh, sat in before I left uh, for Pasadena Playhouse and that uh, was Riverside Park. Uh, that's now Jamie Farr Park and it's a wonderful park, has a swimming pool, shelter house, a uh, softball field and, and of course uh, swings and, and uh, teeter-totters in that. Uh, and then uh, I, uh, I'm so proud they had a scholarship uh, with my name on it that I was able to help send some kids that couldn't afford to go to college after they got out of high school and uh, helped raise uh, eight and a half million dollars for children's charities and abused women of Northwest Ohio. So I'm really uh, quite honored by that. And I've also uh, I've always noted uh, how, how grateful you've been and, and appreciative of the things that have come your way through your talent and, and through your hard work. But but there are some people who have that success and forget what it took to get there. And I sense that you've never done that, that you've appreciated every moment of it. And you, you seem to continue to enjoy each day when you wake up and, and get another day. You got that right again, too. That's exactly <laughs> who I am. I wake up every, I do the George Burns line, you know, I wake up in the morning and look at the obituary column. If my name isn't in it, I have a cup of coffee. So that's what I do. <laughs> and I look forward to doing uh, shows with uh, with you, Richard, people like you. And uh, again, uh, if, if Mike Farrell did uh, the show, you can't be all bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had Mike, we've had Loretta, we've had Jeff Maxwell, uh, we had G.W. Bailey on, Luther Rizzo. Oh, G.W., of course. Wasn't he, not only that, He not only was he wonderful in the uh, in our show, but wonderful with his career afterwards yeah. uh, and, the, and the other things that he's done. Yeah, he's a terrific actor. I think he and, and David Ogden Stiers had been friends before he uh, got on that show. Yeah. I believe they were. And David, wasn't David a wonderful actor, David oh, Agnes Dyers? Brilliant. Well, Loretta talked with us about that a beautiful moment in the last episode when he had, uh, unbeknownst to her, had shared with her finally his phone number in the book that he gave her and then how moved she was. And she said, the reaction you see on camera was real because it was David finally giving me his phone number. Yes, I know. Well, as I said, uh, we we really did uh, like each other and uh, we we spent time with each other with our families and uh, we'd have dinners uh, together and uh, it really was a very very special time in our lives and again uh, having gene reynolds at the uh, at the helm of this the, and then larry gelbart you know uh, larry gelbart uh, used to when he was in high school uh, his father, Harry Gelbart, was the barber to the uh, comics in Beverly Hills. He used to cut wow. Danny Thomas's hair. <laughs> he used to cut uh, uh, all of the other comics, Milton Berle and, and, and so on and so forth, Jack Benny's hair. And uh, 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 I think Larry was at uh, Fairfax High School at the time. And Larry told Danny Thomas, he was cutting Danny's hair. He says, my son wants to be a writer. He tells, you know, writing jokes and everything else. So Danny says, all right, all right, let me see some <laughs> of the jokes. So Larry sold, I mean, showed uh, Danny the jokes and, and he, uh, Danny Thomas bought Larry's jokes. And that's why uh, Larry made me Lebanese in, uh, in MASH <laughs> to pay back Danny Thomas. Oh, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Jamie, thank you so much. It's been such a delight to talk with you. I appreciate you making time for us today. Well, again, I, it's my pleasure. And if you talk to Mike again, uh, uh, tell him that uh, I, I'm glad that uh, he told me to do your show as well. <laughs> we will do that. Mike will be on with us in a few weeks to uh, be part of this special. So we'll pass that along. Uh, be well. Enjoy. You've got a, another... Uh, Another trip coming up, right, with Jeff and Loretta very soon? Yeah, I think we're going to Tennessee, and then we've got another one, I think, in uh, in Baltimore, uh, Maryland. I, I hope I can make it. I 
I'm still that ham. I still want to get out there <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and be part of the business. Well, you sound great. And I'm so glad we got to talk today. I wish you uh, continued good health and uh, hope we can do it again down the road sometime. Okay. Don't forget to try that Harbor candy I told you about. That's in a Gunquit, Maine. Absolutely. Uh, we just ordered some candy for one of our friends uh, in Kansas City. And uh, I, I enjoy being at the Gunkwood Playhouse. I think I did Damn Yankees there. My my wife worked down there. Uh, was a stage manager there several years ago. Is that right? Yeah. Oh well, I I, I hope uh, that uh, that uh, they said some nice things about me at the Playhouse. <laughs> How could they not? How could they not? <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, Richard. thank you, Jamie. Be well. Okay. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> well, Carrie, we talked about it at the, at the time. He's just uh, another one of those. Those guests we've had that when you hear the voice, you do a double take and say, oh, oh yeah, that's, that is Jamie Farr. Absolutely. Yeah. The, such a distinctive voice. And uh, even, even at his age, it, it's still such a strong voice yeah. too, you know, and, and uh, yeah, just a delight to hear that conversation. What a great guy. Uh, Jamie just turned 88 a mm. few weeks ago and uh, still sharp as ever. So much fun to talk with Jamie Farr. Here on downtown, we'll uh, pause for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we talk a little baseball, Red Sox baseball, with Sean McAdam next on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Longtime sports writer covering the Red Sox for more than three decades. These days, plies his trade for Boston Sports Journal. And he's written a brand new book. It's part of a series that several major league teams are doing called The Franchise, a curated history of the Sox. Here's our conversation with Sean McAdam. Sean, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, guys. Nice to be on with you, as always. What a wonderful read this is. I, I could not put this down uh, when I got it last week. I, I loved it. And uh, I love the way the book is organized, too. Well, thank you, Rich. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, it, it was uh, your proverbial labor of love to put together, um, although there were perhaps a swear word or two uttered along the way and uh, <laughs> meeting deadlines. But in general, it was a... Uh, it was a positive experience, and you know it's the kind of thing where you're you're tasked with telling the story of a franchise that uh, you know dates back 120 or so years, a Charter American League franchise, and kind of like looking up at the top of the mountain and wondering where to start. So um, I made some decisions pretty early on, and and I should at this point thank Triumph Books of Chicago, the publishers who approached me on this project and basically, you know, let left it in my hands as to what to focus on. And I made the decision pretty early on that it was going to be mostly modern uh, in its focus, which is to say from 1960 or so on. I know there are probably younger listeners who don't regard 62 <laughs> years ago as terribly modern, but uh, those of us of a certain age might disagree. Um, and, you know, I, I, I realized early on that I couldn't write the comprehensive history of the Red Sox without devote, devoting years and years and thousands of pages. So it is, as the title promises, curated. And there are some dives into the early part of the franchise, uh, the, the purchase of the franchise by Tom Yawkey and, and uh, his ownership, which goes if you count his estate, uh, didn't end until 20 years ago. Uh, the, the history of the ballpark, Fenway, its evolution, its uh, updated 
uh, nature over the last 20 or so years. Uh, and then, you know, figures like Ted Williams, without whom you can't possibly tell the story of the Red Sox. But a lot of it, as you can see by looking at the table of contents and the chapter outlines, is kind of post-1960 or maybe Yaz is the, is, mm. the, uh, uh, is the dividing point from the beginning of Carl Ustremski's Red Sox career in 1961. Most of the book focuses on that era. Well, and when you talk about the park, that's such an important part of the story because I would say, what, maybe the Red Sox and the Cubs and perhaps nobody else has a history that is as intricately connected to the park that they play in. Yeah, that's true. And as I write, for a number of years, maybe even decades, uh, it's possible that Fenway served as a detriment to the Red Sox success because we all know that for too long, the team seemed to overvalue things like right-handed power because of the inviting left-field wall and the monster and uh, didn't pay nearly as much attention to other aspects of the game like pitching and defense. And it's probably no surprise that uh, when you look at the 2014 that finally uh, ended the championship drought of 86 years, that you know, that that team had a rotation that included uh, two Hall of Fame caliber pitches, pitchers in Pedro Martinez and, and Kurt Schilling, and a third in Derek Lowe, who was uh, enormously important to that staff. And, you know, the changes they made in midseason with the Nomar trade to improve the defense at short and first, it was as if a light finally went on and said, oh, you don't have to win every game 10 to 9. <laughs> and what do you know, uh, a few months later, they were finally champions. And as much as we like to think of Fenway as America's most beloved ballpark, you point out there have been at least a couple occasions along the way where the Sox were certainly open to a brand-new stadium and even a new location. Yeah, in the mid-60s, uh, that, that's why that 1967 team is so important, not for... Uh, not just for baby boomers like the two of us, Rich, uh, as probably our, our gateway drug to Red Sox Nation, um, but also because it probably quite literally saved the franchise from having to move out of the city. Um, you know, in the early to mid-60s, the team was not competitive. Uh, the, the, the average attendance was about 10,000 per game. You could walk up uh, minutes before first pitch and get yourself a great box seat near the playing field. And uh, Tom Yockey began to wonder whether it was good business to remain in Boston in a downtown area where the real estate was costly and began to think about and explore some moves out to the suburbs. This was a time when, you know, uh, there was kind of a flight from urban areas to the suburbs in the 60s. And he at least began to, uh, to, to explore his options there. And, of course, the success of the 67 team uh, kind of put that to bed for a long time. The Red Sox became relevant again. A generation of fans got on the bandwagon and never left. And Fenway, uh, you know, with some investments and a facelift or three along the way, uh, you know, remains somewhat viable here, some... Uh, 55 years later, but it, that that was not the case at all in the 60s. Fenway's future was very much in question back then. We're talking with Sean McAdam about his new book on the Red Sox called The Franchise, and I had not looked at the chapters ahead of time. I just jumped right in, and when I got to Chapter 4, a big smile came to my face because I was so delighted when you talked about the media to see that you wrote about my favorite Red Sox broadcaster of all time, the great Ned Martin. Yeah, uh, he, he fits that bill for me is, uh, too, Rich. And, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, the old uh, saying is, the to the victor goes the spoils, well, to the author go the topic. <laughs> and I got to choose, you know, uh, my own uh some own, some of my own personal heroes, uh, uh, among them Ned Martin as one of my absolute favorite broadcasters of all time, and certainly Peter Gammons, who is part of that chapter as well, Jerry Remy, who I was lucky enough to 
to call a friend and get to know very well over the last 25 years or so. But yeah, Ned, I think is, is, um, is terribly underrated and, and sadly unappreciated, underappreciated. I, I think he long ago should have won, uh, you know, the award that goes annually, the Ford Frick award that goes annually to, uh, one broadcaster and he's recognized in Cooperstown. I, I, it's too bad that Ned is not there. I find that inconceivable. He was so, uh, erudite and so learned and could have such a good time, uh, introducing, uh, you know, elements of play and tying them to history or literature. Uh, you know, he was not a, uh, he did not spend a lot of time on launch angle or UZR <laughs> in his time, but he made watching Red Sox games endlessly entertaining, whether they were winning or losing. And he did so in, in, in such a delightful manner. And, and uh, to me, he's, he's missed all the time. I still have a vivid memory because only Ned Martin would have done this. And it was in the midst of a, a difficult season and, and yet another game. And I don't remember the year, but another game slipped away. And Ned, as only he could do, just dropped in. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes when he wanted to be a little more economical, he would just drop a mercy on you. <laughs> uh, that That could be good or bad. Uh, that could be a, uh, a great Red Sox rally that came to fruition, or it could be, a, you know, a 17-3 to beating. Um, but he had a remarkable way about him to, uh, you know, to, to use the language and really entertain you. I love your chapters on the icons, Ted Williams, Carl Yastrzemski, David Ortiz, can you, without giving away too much, can you share a little bit of the wonderful story about when you were in college at Providence and you managed to get Ted Williams on your radio show? Yeah, it actually wasn't in college, Richard. It was shortly after. Oh, okay. I, I was working with, uh, I think it was probably 1982 or three. I was out of college, but working in Providence Radio. Uh, I was the producer for Chuck Wilson. Um, who many may remember mm. having worked at ESPN Radio in addition to the Providence Market for a long time. Chuck was a great interviewer, and I learned so much about the sports media business from him. And I served as his producer. And uh, we happened to um, make acquaintances with the gentleman who ran Ted Williams' baseball camp in uh, Lakeville, Massachusetts, which is kind of over in the uh, kind of uh, over near the New Bedford area uh, in southeastern Mass. Uh, the, the gentleman who ran the camp uh, listened to the show, and we had mentioned to him almost on a lark that, gee, if, um, you know, if Ted's ever by, maybe you could arrange for us to, uh, to, to speak to him via the phone and be a guest on the show. And he said, well, sure, I'll, I'll bring it up. And we thought, well, yes, that, that'll happen. And then with about an hour's notice once, he called us and said, hey, um, I talked to Ted and he'd be happy to come on with you. And uh, after our jaws collectively hit the floor and we picked them up, uh, you know, Chuck did, uh, uh, you know, an hour of prep and uh, a list of questions that you would want to ask Ted Williams. I was uh, that night his co-host with him. And I'll leave out the, um, <laughs> the the end of the story because I, I think it's probably better when you read it. But, yes, uh, it, it was a thrilling hour of radio, um, and the length has something to do with how things <laughs> end up. Um, but you know, we just couldn't believe our good fortune that the famously reclusive and anti-media you know, often. Uh, uh, superstar Ted Williams was giving us this time and and allowing people to call in to ask questions of him and uh, you know I have a tape of that somewhere and that is a prized possession and uh, I'll I'll leave the uh, the denouement of that story 
to the readers because I think it has a better impact when you're reading it. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful kicker to the story there. I also appreciate the fact that, again, another name that perhaps younger fans don't know, but so important to the history of this team, and that's when you wrote about former GM Dick O'Connell. Yeah, every interview I've done about the book, Rich, and every I've only done one in-store signing appearance, but that name comes up. Uh, with every interviewer, and if it doesn't, I make sure it does. Because, um, you know, I was young and followed the team from 67 on, and I was aware that there was a gentleman named Dick O'Connell who was in charge of making trades. This was before free agency ever existed in Marvin Miller's eye. Um, But I knew that he was the guy that put the team together. And over the years, I've read a great deal about him and uh, and done some research. But um, I, I think he, too, is, is sadly underrated in Red Sox history. Uh, I've noted that with, you know, the better bounce of a ball or a break here or there, uh, Dick O'Connell could have been the architect of four American League pennant winners in the span of 11 years. He was the architect, excuse me, of the 67 team of the 75 team. And then he also put together, of course, the 72 team that finished a half game out due to the inequities of the schedule after the early season strike. And then of course, famously the 78 team uh, that lost in the playoff game to the Yankees uh, after which O'Connell was fired. Um, But not only did he put together a stretch of, of four contenders, uh, and two pennant winners who went on to lose Game 7 of the World Series twice. Um, but he also changed the narrative of the team's history. Uh, as we know, sadly, the Red Sox are saddled with the ignominious uh, distinction of being the last team to integrate in 1959 when they added Pumpsy Green to the roster. Um, and for the longest time, uh, the Red Sox were also you know, the whitest and most exclusionary team, even after Pumpsy Green. And Dick O'Connell stepped into a bit of a power vacuum. There were people in the organization who sort of receded into the background, and O'Connell had more power over the composition of the team than he ever had before, and decided that he was not going to be tied to the racist or or, uh, exclusionary policies of the past and put together a 67 team that had an African-American at third base, first base, center field for the month of September and into the World Series uh, behind the plate. Uh, There was a Latino starting pitcher. There was an African-American closer. And that began a, a, a turnaround of the narrative of the Red Sox, that this was not the old boy network with a whites only policy. Uh, he decided he was going to put the best 25 guys on the roster and on the field, regardless of, of skin color or language or ethnicity, and damn the consequences. And along the way, oversaw a scouting and development program that produced Tony Conigliaro, Rico Petroselli, Reggie Smith, Jim Lomborg, Carlton Fisk, Fred Lynn, Jim Rice, and others. And uh, Bill Lee is, is, is another who came up under his watch. So uh, he did three things. He uh, developed a great farm system and scouting organization to find uh, young talent. He put winning teams on the field, and he erased an ugly chapter of the team's history. By the way, 63 years ago tomorrow, Pumpsy Green played his first game with the Red Sox. Wow, didn't realize that we were coming up on that anniversary. The book is wonderful. It is the franchise, a curated history of the Sox. Uh, Sean, we have to ask about uh, this year's edition of the Sox before we let you go. Uh, They get back at it, a series with the Blue Jays starting on Friday. And, And the big question in the minds of the fans is, are they buyers or sellers at the deadline? Yeah, that's a good question, um, Rich. And, you know, I I wrote a couple of days ago that they're kind of right on the precipice. You know, they're they're only two games out of the final wild card. It wasn't long ago that they were leading the wild card race. And, you know, with a a good bit of momentum, if they can win some games to start coming out of the break, uh, they could be back. 
but they're also only two and a half games out of last place in the American League East, and there's no guarantees here. Uh, so I thought they could go any number of three ways, buy, sell, or maybe a little combination uh, of both. Um, in talking to some people around the game, in and out of the organization the last couple of days, my strong sense is for now, and you know, if they were to go one and nine on this upcoming homestand, that could obviously change. But the, the information I'm getting from people both in and out of the organization is that this team is going to be looking to improve the team and add talent uh, at that August 2nd deadline with some obvious needs at the bullpen and either, probably not both, but either an upgrade at first base or right field. It's clear they need an offensive upgrade at least one of those two. It may be too much to ask. Uh, to do both and still improve the bullpen. But uh, my sense is that, you know, they're ready to jump in with two feet, that they see this team as a viable contender who just went through a bad couple of weeks, uh, brought on at least in part by uh, a tsunami of injuries to the starting rotation. Now most of those guys are coming back, though obviously they've lost Chris Sale for a second time. Um, so they're, they're kind of bullish uh, at Fenway Park, from what I can understand, and I would expect they're going to be aggressive. Well, Sean, great to talk with you as always. Now, this can't be possible. I think I read the other day. Is this true that you are the longest tenured writer on the Red Sox beat? How can that be when you're so young? Uh, it, it, it's a mystery to me, Rich, and it's a question I ask every day <laughs> as I limp into the press box and rest my store back in a chair somewhere. Uh, but somewhere along the way, I have uh, I have gained that ignominious distinction. Yes, that's that's true. This is season number thirty four and counting. Well, all of that uh, wonderful knowledge, institutional knowledge, great research, and tremendous writing skills, all available to you right now in this wonderful history of the Red Sox, the franchise from Sean McAdam, uh, with a forward by a guy named David Ortiz. It is a wonderful read. Sean, congratulations on a terrific book, and thanks, as always, for visiting with us this afternoon. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Rich. I appreciate your kind words about it. Um, I would tell people that it's available uh, first and foremost, at your local independent bookstore, um, but also at the, uh, um, at the, the, the bigger brick and mortars like uh, Barnes & Noble and also on Amazon Online and wherever you get your books. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I know you've got a great audience and a lot of Red Sox fans, and I hope they pick it up and enjoy it as you did. Well, I hope they do, too, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Rich. Sean McAdam talking Red Sox in his new book, The Franchise, here on Downtown. Our thanks to Sean, thanks to the great Jamie Farr, and thanks to you. Downtown brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.